Christmas of, uh, of 1989, uh, my family, we would spend Christmas either at my, my dad's parents, which was in East Tennessee, or we would stay at my, we would be at my mom's parents in my hometown in West Tennessee. We would spend Christmas at one of those places. And I don't know how you guys do Christmas, but when we did Christmas, we all stayed at the grandparents' house. Even when we were in town, we would stay at our grandparents' house for Christmas Eve. We'd have a dinner. Uh, we would get up the next morning. We would, uh, we would open presents there at the house and have, uh, uh, have breakfast. Well, that Christmas morning, we were in my hometown, but we were at my grandmother's and grandfather's house. Uh, we all, we, we did Christmas presents in their living room. Room. They had a little sitting room, and um, and we were all spread out there. And we would um, we walked in, and there was a note on the Christmas tree, and it was to me, and uh, or I wouldn't be telling the story. And uh, and the note had a uh, a red ribbon tied to it, and the ribbon left the tree and went up the wall and around the door frame and went on down. And so as the morning progressed, uh, my my father was more and more excited. Finally, it was time for me to open this card and. Of course, the card was telling me to follow the ribbon through the house, and so it went from the dining or from the living room to the dining room, past all the food, biscuit on the way into the kitchen. Right? It went through the kitchen. They lived in a ranch, and so everything you know is spread out. It went through the kitchen, around the edge of the kitchen, uh, into the laundry room, and then it ducked under the door in the, the laundry room that, had, that went out to the garage. And uh, so I'm going to pause for a second and let you guys just kind of guess at what. It might have been outside. All right, you got something in your minds, okay? So I thought, okay, I, I thought it was a dog. <clears throat> I really did. I thought it was going to be a dog, and that would have been awesome. But now you know it wasn't a dog, right? Because I said it would have been awesome. Um, and I was really excited. I mean, an anticipation mounted as I followed this ribbon through the house. Uh, but as excited as I was, my father was even more excited. I mean, he about couldn't contain himself. In fact, if, if I remember correctly, he was opening the door when I got there. Like he, he so wanted it. And I stepped out into the garage and it was a brand new used pickup truck. All right. It was remarkable. Yeah. I mean, it's a great, and, and I'll, you know, be, I'll never live, uh, you know, I'll never have another Christmas like that. Uh, and uh, so, the, but as much as I was excited about the truck and I was, I was only 15. Uh, and so I couldn't drive the truck that I got for Christmas. Uh, but my father was elated. He could not. In fact, the story goes that he actually bought the truck about a month earlier and he was going to, he was going to wait. And I would not, I was not gonna get the truck till my, my 16th birthday. Uh, which was September, all right? And uh, so my father could not stand it. He could not wait until September. And uh, so, uh, he, so he decided that he would uh, break the gift out at Christmas time. And he was, he was, he was like a little kid. Uh, and, he was, and he was overjoyed at revealing the mystery of what laid at the end of the ribbon that ran through the house. And it was a great present. Uh, and you might be saying, well, why that story? Because I think that that's what Paul is doing here in Ephesians. Paul is super excited about the mystery of the gospel that has been revealed. And he cannot wait. I mean, at every turn in the book of Ephesians, he's, he's hitting pause on what he's trying to tell him. And he's jumping in to this, this glorious truth of the mystery of the gospel that's been revealed through Jesus. And he's, and he's amazed at the mystery. He longs to reveal the secret that, that in fact was tied to the end of a crimson string that wove its way through the pages of history from creation till it culminated on a Roman cross. So just like my father, 
in his excitement because he knew what was coming. Paul knew because it was revealed to him what was coming. And so let's read what Paul writes in Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you heard of the stewardship of God's grace, it was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. Let's pray. Father, in the next few minutes, would you give us the grace to see the remarkable truth of the mystery of the gospel that was revealed in Jesus Christ and handed down to us. Lord, may, may, we, may we just sit and revel in your wisdom of salvation. And may we see the glory of what you've done. And may we live our lives in light of it. And Lord, we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, uh, April 20th of 1718, there was a man born in Connecticut with the name David Brainerd. And this man only lived 29 short years and died on October the 9th of 1747. And you might be asking, well, what does his life have to do with this text? And uh, if you give me a second to kind of unpack the history of David Brainerd, uh, maybe it'll make sense. Brainerd was born in Connecticut to Puritan parents. His dad was a legislator in Connecticut uh, in the colonies, uh, but he died when David was nine. And so early in his life, uh, he faced hardship. His father passed away. His mother died when he was 14. Uh, and so by his teenage years, he, uh, his, both of his parents had passed away and he had other family members that died at young ages as well. He was raised in a religious family, but by David's own admission, he did not come to faith in Jesus Christ until he was 21. Um, he was given to bouts of depression which seemed to have run in his family. There were tons of people uh, who, who, who were even in his, in his autobiography, his biography, uh, he had family members that died early deaths because of depression. Uh, he, was, he went to Yale, which is a remarkable thing. He went to Yale to college, but he was kicked out of Yale in his third year. Uh, and we get to that point in David's life. He's in his 20s. Uh, it's after his conversion. He's a student at Yale. He's kicked out of Yale. And if he had not been kicked out of Yale, 
then we, we may never have known David Brainerd in the, the occupation that has had an untold impact on the modern missionary world. The summer of the year that Brainerd was kicked out of Yale, uh, he was licensed to preach and then appointed as a missionary to the Native Americans in the colonies, or right outside of the colonies. For three years after that commissioning, Brainerd labeled with very little success until June of 1745 when God moved among a tribe that he was interacting with in New Jersey. So for the next two years, he invested his life into this small Native American tribe that, that had several members over the course of time that, that, that came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And he was with them until he was physically unable to continue, and he died of tuberculosis at the age of 29. Actually died in the home of Jonathan Edwards. Um, his short life, full of sickness and disappointment, depression, only minor missionary fruit, uh, and has inspired and encouraged countless other great saints of God. Jonathan Edwards, whom he was, was older than him, but he died in Edwards' home. William Carey, Robert Morrison, uh, David Livingston, Andrew Murray, and Jim Elliott are just a few names of men that we might come across in the history of the church who were impacted by the life of this man who lived in relative obscurity in New England and was a missionary to Native Americans and wasn't terribly successful at that. He was, a, he was a, a, an incredible writer, and we have his diary and, and his journals, um, which carried the sweet but hard rhythms of earnestness and devotion, of helplessness, of questioning his own calling, of longing for God, of fear of failure, uh, of accounts of intense prayer and fasting and quiet meditation that spurred many to chase hard after God all the more. In fact, one uh, writer, one contemporary writer has said of Brainerd, his life is vivid. It's a vivid and powerful testimony to the truth that God can and does use weak, sick, discouraged, beat down, lonely, struggling saints who cry to him day and night and accomplish ma- amazing things for God. Why Brainerd's life in relation to this text? Because Paul starts out in Paul's own life testifies to the truth that God will advance the gospel through affliction. God advances the gospel through affliction. Paul starts out and he says, I'm a prisoner for Jesus Christ on your behalf because of you Gentiles. And he ends this section of, 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 uh, of, of this passage saying, I don't want you to be discouraged by what I'm suffering, for it's, it's for your good and for your glory. Right? So Paul was, was riddled with affliction. And this passage even points to the fact that he starts to pray for the Ephesians. He, he loves to break out in prayer and praise when he writes his letters. And he starts to here, but then he stops and he has to jump into the mystery of his calling and the gospel, the mystery of the gospel that he was called to. Now, to be fair, okay, affliction is not the only way that the gospel will be advanced. God uses all kinds of things to advance his gospel. But certainly in Paul's life, it's a testimony to the fact that God can work through our afflictions to bring glory to his name and accomplish his plan. Here in Ephesians, he's reminding his readers of the testimony of his conversion and his commissioning, which brought him to them. In fact, 
If it were not for Paul's conversion and commissioning, most of us would not be sitting here today hearing the gospel. Because most of us do not claim ethnic Jewish background. And Paul, by God's own hand, became the the one who took the gospel to the Gentiles. That's us. So we, in in some remarkable way, we sit in this room today because of the faithfulness of Paul to the call on his life to take the the mystery of the gospel to those that were outside of the lineage of Abraham. Paul's own life was born out of affliction. In, In Acts 9, we have the account of his conversion. And this is what is written. Now, as he went on his way to Damascus, now remember, Paul had in his hands orders from the Sanhedrin to imprison and kill people who profess belief in Jesus Christ, all right? And so he's on the way to Damascus to look for believers of the way of, 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 of Christ. And on the way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. So Paul's own conversion came at the hands of physical affliction, right? By the hand of God, he was blinded. Then he was sent into the city to wait for a man that God told him would come to heal him of his blindness. He was confronted by the very Jesus whom he was setting out to persecute people for following. And at the hand of affliction, Paul came face to face with Jesus. And then his commissioning, his life's mission had It was riddled with the promise of affliction. And if you go on in Acts 9, uh, there's a man in Damascus named Ananias. And we pick up there and he says, Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered and said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And then this is what God says. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my own name. Paul's own life gives proof that these words would come true. In 2 Corinthians, he writes... And he tells us a little of his history. He's toward the end of his life when he pens 2 Corinthians. And this is what he says about his own life after conversion, after believing in Jesus and following him. Um, uh, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Uh, frequent journeys in danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger, there's a theme here. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. Often without food. In cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. 
Paul's life shows us that God can use our trials to display his grace and give us power to proclaim his goodness even in the face of affliction. We, you know, why talk about Paul's afflictions and why do I think it matters here in Ephesians? Because to be quite honest, if any of us in this room have lived long enough, we know what it feels like to face trials. We know what it feels like to suffer. And if we get introspective in our suffering, then we think that there's no point to it. And we turn in on ourselves and we're overcome with the nature of what's happening. Sin stands in stark opposition to the authority of God. By default, that means that life is going to be hard. Because sin has entered the world and it has affected everything, even creation itself. When we become believers, the weight of our sin, the eternal weight of our sin is is removed from us. However, sin still stands until the final day of judgment in the world. And when we are in Christ, we stand in opposition to sin, which means that trials and tribulations are going to come our way. It's why Jesus told his own disciples before his crucifixion in John chapter 15, remember the words I said to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted you, they will also persecute me. Guys, to know and share the gospel is a gift of grace. But how is that possible, right? Why would Paul, in all of this talk of affliction and in the fact that Paul's in prison, Right? He's a prisoner because of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles because he has taken the message of salvation to them. He sits in prison. Uh, because of that, he's persecuted in almost every place that he turns. And yet, in, even in this passage, Paul would say in chapter 2, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. And later on in verse 7, he says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. How in the world can Paul say these things after all that he has endured? We get to the end of, well, not the end of his life, but well, it is the end of his life. He's writing 2 Corinthians earlier in that book, and he says in 2 Corinthians 4, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. How could Paul speak these words? Paul understood that no life, no matter how good, has eternal value apart from Jesus. No life, no matter how bad, is beyond the reach of his saving grace. And no life spent for Christ, no matter how hard, can compare to the richness of salvation and the promise of what's to come. Paul came face to face with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and it changed his perspective. He realized that there was nothing more powerful than knowing Jesus and being known by Him. I am in no way trying to diminish the real pain of affliction and suffering, and neither was Paul. He knew real hurt. 
And he knew real sorrow, as did David Brainerd and any other of thousands of men and women who we could look at their lives and hear their testimonies who've spent their lives for the sake of the gospel. Hurt, pain, sorrow, anguish, it it weighs in on us. One modern missionary wrote of suffering, no amount of good theology is able to take the pain out of suffering. Too often we allow ourselves to believe that a robust view of God's sovereignty in all things means that when suffering comes, it won't hurt. God's sovereignty doesn't take away the pain and the evil that confront us in our lives. It works them for our good. Guys, even at the heart of the gospel that saved us, there is a suffering Savior. The gospel came to us through affliction. Through the affliction of the one who would do the unthinkable. Who would give himself in our place that we might be reconciled to God. So God uses affliction to advance the good news. But he also builds his church through the proclamation of that good news, of the gospel. When the word is preached, the spirit changes hearts and dead men are brought to life and the family of God grows. The church grows. Paul tells us the mystery of the gospel is that salvation, the being brought into a right relationship with the one true God, is extended beyond the ethnic children of God. He says in verse 6, he says it this way, this mystery, the mystery of the gospel that has been revealed uh, to me and, and to us in these days, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the same language that he uses just a few verses before at the end of chapter 2 when he writes, you Gentiles, you Ephesians, you who were not part of Abraham's lineage, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what is it about the gospel that is so powerful that it's a means by which the church is built? It's Jesus. The gospel isn't good news if it isn't about Jesus and his saving work. Nothing, nothing confronts our pride, our selfishness, and our prejudices like the gospel. Because the gospel tells us this, that no one is worthy save Jesus, but anyone is accepted through Jesus. Think about that. The gospel is good news because it tells us no one is worthy Save Jesus, but anyone is accepted through Jesus. The gospel perfectly preserves God's holy righteousness, his justice, his grace, and his mercy, and his love. It's only in the gospel that seemingly contradictory characteristics can be held in perfect balance to glorify God and to be for our good. The gospel is the seed that grows the church. 
But this message, this gospel, this message of unsearchable riches of Christ has to be proclaimed. We have a news that has to be spoken. So Paul writes, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. The grace to be a minister of the gospel, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery that was hidden for the ages in God who created all things. He writes in Romans in chapter 10, how then uh, will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Guys, it is a gift of God's grace and a privilege to stand before you and proclaim the gospel. But here's the reality. The same gospel that I can stand here and preach to you has been entrusted to you as well. If you are a professing believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are given the ministry of reconciliation that the gospel brings and you are called to to preach it. You are called to to extend it beyond these walls. And I would argue even that that the church grows more by the proclamation of the gospel of the people who sit in the pews than by any one man who stands in a pulpit ever. God has entrusted the mystery of the gospel to you, but it must be proclaimed. And when it's proclaimed, God builds his church because when the good news is proclaimed, hearts are changed. People come to faith in Jesus and the family grows. So what do we do in response to it? Let's join God in building his church by joyfully proclaiming the gospel. Joyfully proclaiming the gospel. At Providence, we work really hard to try and give you guys tangible ways to put these things into practice. And the team has done a remarkable job to even provide out at Next Steps a card a prayer card. And on this prayer card, uh, it, is, it is to help you to identify people that need to hear the good news of the gospel. To give you something tangible to hold in front of you to say, who in my family doesn't know Jesus? Doesn't know this, this mystery of reconciliation that comes through the shed blood of a Savior? Who of my neighbors need to hear this good news? Who of my coworkers or, or who of just people, random people in my life that I know? Who needs to know this? And so even with these little tools, they're all meant to help you to move toward being part of the proclamation of the good news of salvation in Jesus, and you get to be a part of the remarkable work of God to build his church through people coming to know him by faith. God advances his gospel through affliction. He builds his church through the proclamation of the gospel. And then finally, in this passage, we see that God displays his manifold glory through the church. And this may be the most remarkable thing that Paul says in the whole of this passage. You know, uh, being good North Carolinians, uh, we probably know the history of the Wright brothers, but have you ever thought much about the mechanics or the physics of an airplane? Most of us don't think about the amazing feat of aeronautical engineering until we experience turbulence, right? And then, and then we think about the mechanics of an airplane. Uh, but for a design engineer, someone who lives their life in physics and in, and in the, the, just the science of it, 
the design and the mechanics of an airplane are breathtaking. Imagine the joy. You can see the picture here uh, on that day in December. Uh, I think it's December 17th of 1903. Uh, just a few miles uh, from here at Kitty Hawk, uh, when the Wright brothers saw their powered airplane take flight several times that day in, in short flights. The mystery of fixed wing powered flight was made known. It was through, through work, through their knowledge and others who'd worked on aerodynamics, uh, the mystery of fixed wing power flight was made known. And then it set in motion developments that changed the course of history for human transportation. Think about it. 1903, because of the work of, of the Wright brothers and others who were working on aerodynamics and powered flight, today we can reach the far corners of the globe while we sit back in a chair and read a magazine or watch a movie. As remarkable as the nature of flight is, Paul says the church is proof of the wisdom of God. Think about that. That, 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 that the Wright's airplane was proof that fixed wing powered flight was possible, but Paul says the church is proof that the gospel is, is powerful. He says... He, he was given this ministry to bring to light for everyone what was the plan of the mystery that was hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to not just those in the human realm but to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. But how? How is it possible? What, what, uh, what is his wisdom that is put on display in the gospel in the church? Why would Paul say that the church is a picture of the wisdom of God, God's glory on display? It's this, because the church is the proof of God's reconciling all things to himself. And not only that, but reconciling us to one another. Paul is writing to Gentiles. He spent a ton of time in chapter 2 getting to the heart of this very thing. We spent a ton of time in the last several weeks getting to the heart of how this applies to our modern lives. The church is the greatest representation of the reconciling power of the gospel that exists in the world. And Paul says it gets to reveal the manifold wisdom of God. He says in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, uh, and entrusting to them, to those who responded in faith to Jesus, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So in Christ, God reconciled all things to himself and then called us agents of reconciliation to, man, to show his glory to the world. The church gets the joy of being that before the world. Now, to be sure, those of us who make up the church are imperfect. But the Savior who established the church is not. His wisdom is displayed in an imperfect people who've been saved through a perfect sacrifice. What is the mystery of God's wisdom? The reconciling power of Jesus Christ. Salvation extended to all who believe and trust in Jesus, not just to those who were born of Abraham. That the saving people of the saving of people through belief in Jesus would result 
in what we are made to do, which is God being glorified. That the church, the saving of people, the reconciling of of rebels to the Savior, that it would put God's wisdom on display. Because who else could come up with a plan to redeem us the way God has? Who else would call a people together who had nothing in common and bring them together under one common thread of the shed blood of a Savior who reconciles us to the God who makes us? And this is, this is what we get to be a part of. Think about that. That God, God, by His gift of grace, that He gives us the body to put His gospel on display. So what do we do with that? Well, let's passionately pursue a church that models the mystery of God's wisdom in the gospel. Let's long for a church that shows the complexity of diversity, that shows the reconciling nature of God to the world. And let's pursue it with everything that we have. And let's sit back and watch God be glorified and His wisdom be exalted as it becomes that. And some of you guys know uh, from a few times, I think a couple of months ago when I preached, I told you I'd been out in Southern Colorado earlier this year. Uh, and one of the days that I was out in uh, Southern Colorado, I was, I was in, um, the, the wind was blowing out of the west. And I was on a peak about a little over 10,000 feet. And from where I sat on this particular peak, you could look out and across uh, a, a, a tremendous valley, there was a mountain range that runs over 75 miles and extends from uh, Colorado down into New Mexico. And it's a remarkable uh, range. Uh, most of the peaks, or I, I say most, a ton of the peaks in this mountain range fall above 12,000 and up to a little over 14,000 feet. So you're talking about a magnificent sight. I mean, it, it's, a, it's just hard to fathom the beauty that's there. But on this particular day, the winds were blowing out of the west and they'd blown in a ton of smoke and haze from all the fires that were burning in some of the other western states. And in that day, I sat on this 10,000 plus peak, foot peak and looked across the valley to where I should have been able to have seen 13,000 foot peaks that were only, as a crow flies, probably you know, five miles away and could not see the mountains. They were obscured by the haze. But it didn't change that they were glorious. Right, The mountains were still magnificent. They were just hidden by the haze. There's a ton of things in our life that will obscure the glory of God. Our own sin will do that. Our apathy toward one another and toward the things of God can do that. Sometimes even the church can obscure the glory of God. When it turns in on itself, it makes it about something other than the shed blood of Jesus. But it doesn't make God's glory any less. It doesn't diminish His glory. It just stands in the way of seeing it. So today, as we contemplate the greatness of the mystery of the gospel that was proclaimed through the shed blood of Jesus and given to us to reconcile us to a Savior... Let us not stand between others and the glory of God, but instead, let's embrace one another and embrace the good news of the gospel and let's point people toward him that we might do what Paul says, that we might be 
the ones to display the manifold wisdom of God to the world and to the heavenly realms and that they might declare, look at God's glory. Well, let's pray. Father, God, would you just, would you help us to see your glory in a magnificent way? Would you help us to see that you call us to a ministry of reconciliation, that you call us uh, to, to, to be the ones who are gifted with the gift of proclaiming the good news of the gospel, that even in the midst of our suffering and our pain, that we are not alone, that, uh, that, we, that we have a Savior who knows uh, what it is like to feel the sting of toil and pain, and that you even shed your own blood on our behalf, that we might be reconciled to you, not so that that pain would go away, though, though, though your promise is that it will, but so that we might know that all the promises that you make of what is to come are true. God, would you give us even this day a heart to long to see the world come to know this mystery that has been revealed? Would you help us to be a people who passionately pursue a church who displays your glory before others? God, as we stand here in the next few minutes and we sing our songs to you and we give of our tithes and our offerings, let us do it out of a grateful heart because of the amazing gift of the gospel that has been given to us by no work of our own, but simply by your kindness. And may we, with one voice, lift our voices to you put your glory on display before the world that they might know you and know your saving power. We pray these things in Christ's name.